We want to get a look at a passage this morning in Mark chapter 5. And this is in our series, Power for You, The Power of Telling. And I want to read the whole story because it's a a great, interesting story. It's a provoking one. I believe this is a powerful and, I would say, prophetic story. There's a prophetic element to it, which I hope I'll be able to draw out later as we talk about it. So we're going to start verse 1 of Mark 5. They, that they is Jesus and the disciples, they went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. I can't pronounce these things, but nor nor can you, so we can guess. Gerasenes. You know, nobody knows how they said it, do they? When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, near, uh, on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. It's a great story, and there's a lot to learn out of it. Now, just at the end, it uses the word the Decapolis, and that's quite key to our understanding of the story. This region, which I couldn't pronounce, is in an area called the Decapolis, which means the Ten Cities. And actually, it was an unusual region. It was the other side of the Lake of Galilee. It was not somewhere where Jews particularly liked to go. There were Jewish people living there, but the ten cities had been set up by the Greeks a hundred or hundreds of years earlier. So they had a quite strong Greek influence and Greek culture. It wasn't particularly Jewish. It was quite pagan in some ways. And the Jews who lived there were probably a little more flexible, shall we say, about the law and all the rest of it. So it was a pig-rearing area, significantly, and it did things that the Jews normally would feel were illegal to do. It wasn't very nice. It was quite dark, 
quite a troubled area. Actually, these 10 cities work together, a bit like an early EU. They work together for protection and for trade. And uh, there was a little bit of a, a sort of sense that they, they were another place apart that had a very different approach to the rest of the Jews. And the result of that is, and the, the result of that situation is that the disciples would not have particularly liked going there. They would have thought, this is a bad idea, Jesus. This is rash. This is going over the top, overreaching yourself. We don't really need to go there. They would not have been very confident about what was going to happen. And you can imagine their uh, nervousness, their concern was only uh, too, um, what shall we say, justified as they got out of the boat and this maniac ran towards them who cut himself with stones. To goodness knows what he looked like. Broken chains. He'd got eyes staring out of his head. It's like something out of a horror film. And he really is literally that sort of person. I mean, horror films make it entertaining and all the rest of it. But this is real. This guy is self-harming. He's, he's living amongst dead bodies. He, he, he has been had supernatural strength. Nobody can control him. There's a weird personality disorders all going together in him. And that the disciples are thinking, oh my word, what are we doing here? Right. We're going to look at three things this morning. I have to be quite quick. We're going to look at the authority and power of Jesus. We're going to look at the power, we're going to look at the dynamics of prayer and the power of telling. Because I think there's a lot in this, and it sort of all ties together, as I hope you'll see, as we understand why Jesus went there and what he's doing. I think the first thing I want to look at, which is the authority and power of Jesus, will give us some idea why Jesus went to this Gentile pagan area of Decapolis. He is going to give the disciples a lesson. He wants to demonstrate something about his power and his authority that will be burnt into their minds for the future. And it's very important for the future because the gospel is going to go to multiple places like Decapolis. So Jesus is going there and the disciples, as I say, are nervous thinking, this may not work. How does he think he's going to be able to do what he's done amongst the Jews here? This may well be a disaster. What's he doing? Well, Jesus has got ready, is getting ready to, to take them to a whole other level of expectation and understanding. This man comes running at them. As I said, he's self-harmed, he's, he's wild, he's, he's violent, he's very, very disturbed. Possessed by a number of demons, a huge number. But Jesus, the Son of God, is not intimidated by him. He's not at all intimidated. He, in a sense, stops the man in his tracks, not, not unpleasantly, but graciously by his power and presence. And almost immediately, there is a spiritual battle, and actually the outcome is going to be very certain. And the demons, who know fully who Jesus is, the Son of the Most High God, are immediately on the back foot, metaphorically. They're immediately scrabbling and beginning to bargain and try and, try and argue their way out. Creatures of utter lies and destruction and hatred. They're weird things. And, and, and they're just trying to make the best of it for themselves. They know that they've met their more than their match. They know they may be a legion. This man, who's the Son of God, can command 12 legions of angels. 
If he wants to, he can bring in 12 legions of angels. This is the son of the most high God. They are not in any way going to win. They know that from day one. They know that from the first moment. They know just because they're in Gentile territory, pagan territory, spiritually dark, that is not going to make any difference to his power. Now get that because that's a lesson for you and I. And it's also a lesson for the future, for the disciples. But we're in the future that they were looking to. Jesus' power is unlimited. His authority and power is the same everywhere. Doesn't matter if it's a dark pagan place. Doesn't matter if this, there's legions of demons. Jesus is not intimidated. He's not shaken by that at all. For the disciples, the lesson is that the authority Jesus has and gives them, which is over sickness and demons and all the work of the enemy, There is no place on earth where that authority doesn't work. That it doesn't have to be in friendly Palestine where all the Jews do the right things and the law of God's honoured. It doesn't, it's not not changed by being in this pagan area. It works everywhere. Fillmore writes this, Every demon in the entire world knows that Jesus is king. Let me just say that again. Every demon in the entire world pagan places, places that have never heard of Jesus yet. The people haven't. The demons have. Every demon in the entire world knows that Jesus is king and that he will one day cast them into hell and that there is no way for them to resist the message of his kingdom. Every demon in the world knows that. But they don't play cricket. They don't. It's not cricket. It's not a game by rules. They don't play by the rules. They also try and fight back and duck and wheeze and destroy. We have to know that as well. And we have to exercise that confidence and authority and faith to deal with them. And Jesus is giving a very practical lesson right in front of the disciples, which many of them will have to operate in in the decades to come. Because the demons don't even with Jesus just say, oh, right, give up. They try and argue and twist it. They're just weird, evil, demonic, twisted creatures. So, you know, there's not a fairness here. You have to know who you are. You have to know your authority. You have to use it, which is what Jesus is doing right there in front of them. So although there is, uh, in front of the disciples, so there is a spiritual tussle. And actually, these demons ask this rather odd thing. They ask if they can go into the pigs. And of course, you can speculate all about that as much as you like. But there's probably a bit of a reason for Jesus saying yes to them. I think he is putting down another marker. It may be a judgment on the pig keepers who may have been Jews. We don't know. You know, we're all very speculative. But there's a a point that may be being made there. But I also think Jesus deliberately, and Jesus is quite awkward in this way, he is provoking the people of the region. And that's going to be relevant for some of the other stuff we're going to learn. He's provoking the people of Decapolis. Do you really want me? Do you want the disruption I'll bring? The disruption to your shady economy? The disruption to all that you're doing? Will they repent? Will they accept me? There's a marker. Jesus isn't always comfortable. There's a marker being put down. I'm here. I'm here with my authority. I can deliver this man. This man is beautifully healed, but it's disturbing your economy. What do you think? And the result in verse 17 is they don't want him. They're scared by what happens, and they say, we we don't want this. And you notice the story. It's very telling. They told them about the demon-possessed man. It's verse 16. And told them about the pigs as well. Well, that's all very fine, but we lost 2,000 pigs over this. That's a lot of pigs, actually, even today. 
And, and you, you, you know, there is a real, we don't want you disturbing our world and our lifestyle element to this. They are frightened, but they also very much don't want what Jesus appears to be bringing. So let's say, but that's the first point, that the main point is the disciples have got that Jesus' authority and power works everywhere. And there's no difference. But now I want to move to the second point I want to talk about, the dynamics of prayer. And I I want to use this because this is something that spoke to me personally when I was preparing this last couple of weeks for this morning. It's not something I sort of think I've noticed before. I, I don't remember seeing this before. Let's put up verses 18 and 20. We're going on to the second point, the dynamics of prayer. And verse, Mark 5, verse 18 to 20 says this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now, I think there's something really quite important in this, so I hope all of you will get what I feel God spoke to me about. Jesus is getting into the boat. The man who was demonized, severely damaged and demonized, is now healed, delivered, clothed and in his right mind, as one of the other Gospels, I think, describes it. And he comes and he begs Jesus to let him go with him. He begs Jesus to let him go with him. Now, another word you could use is that would be he prays. He comes and he asks Jesus, can I go with you? The man wanted to be with Jesus. Now, actually, that is really reasonable request, in my opinion. It's very understandable. After all, look what Jesus had done for him. After years of terrible torment, he is free and at peace. And all's well in that sense. He, of course, wanted to learn more. He wants to follow Jesus. He's a disciple of Jesus. And it looks very attractive. There's a bunch of guys who travel with Jesus. Can I join that band, please? And on the negative side, what is there for me here? You know, they all think I'm a nutcase, which I have been in one way. And they all don't want you, Jesus, so they don't want me. So they've just rejected you, so I don't know what my future is here, given my past and given my, what's happened with you in the pigs business. So, I mean, actually, actually, it's a very reasonable request, apart from showing love and devotion to Jesus. He wants to get out of Decapolis, and he wants to get out of his past uh, associations, and he wants to travel with Jesus over to Palestine, start a new life, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that's a reasonable request. And Jesus says no. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says no. You can't come back with me. But there is an important but. Jesus also gave him very clear direction about what he did want him to do. Go home to your own people Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And we need to just think about the whole thing because this reminds us that Jesus does not always grant our requests. The things that we think, why isn't that happening? Why? That is so obvious. But also, and this is very important, 
There is something about the dynamic of what Jesus does say to him that teaches us as well, and we need to learn from it. Because Christians generally, church generally, is quite prevalent, quite prone to giving a distorted view of the prayer relationship between us and God and us and Jesus. Let me just illustrate it with three, which I think are pretty common distortions, very quickly. One would be, God is a sort of divine slot machine. He has to do what we ask him to do. He will never really say no. If he doesn't appear to do what we ask him to do, the problem is with us. We haven't got the formula right. We haven't got enough faith. We haven't pressed the buttons in the right order, used the right words. God will always do what you ask him to do if you get it right. That's one. Another one is the opposite. God is so inscrutable, so other, that you never know what he'll do. And actually, he may grant your request, or more likely, he won't, and you'll never know why, just the mysterious will of God. And so all you can do is adopt a sort of passive fatalism and perhaps put in the spiritual terms, not my will, but yours, Lord, because I don't know what you want and I'm not sure what you're going to do. I hope you might do something. And then perhaps there's a third one which tries to sort of balance it, where I've heard many times, perhaps some of you have, that that God will say, yes, no, or wait, like his traffic lights. You know, it'll be red, green, or it'll be amber. Yes, no, or wait. Now, I would say there are varying bits of truth, varying bits of truth associated with all three of those views. But the the bit they have is so partial and so ignoring of a big fact I'm going to mention in a moment that they make it a distortion because all of them leave this impression that God is an impersonal, distant God where you can either get it right and pull the handle or you never know and he doesn't give you any idea or like there's three lights that will come on and you might be lucky and get the green one. So, but it's not like that. It really isn't. Our relationship is a personal one. It's a, it's a communication. It's a flow of one way and another. This happened with Jesus. He didn't just say no. He said no with a reason, a purpose, and a direction, and a plan for this guy. And we will see quickly in a moment that Jesus had a bigger plan than this man could have dreamt of. But what it's reminding us of is that prayer is a conversation. Prayer is a relationship with the living God, our Father in heaven. It's a relationship in and through our lovely friend Jesus, our Saviour and Redeemer. And we can learn from this that actually our prayers are real passionate requests, but we also need to hear from him too. Hear what's on his heart for us. What is he saying about this? I don't think Jesus' bias is to say no. I don't think Jesus... I mean, there's plenty of bits of truth in what I've parodied just now. You know, I think there's lots of promises that we can claim and take to God. But we need to hear what he's saying back to us. It's a relationship. And we have to work at that. We have to pray. We have to think. We have to talk. You say, yeah, yeah, how does Jesus talk back? Well, I haven't got time for that this morning, but lots of ways. He can talk back to you through the Bible. He can talk back to you through preaching, through prophecies, through the inner witness of the Spirit, through friends, through circumstances sometimes, providential things you know God is in. The list is quite long. But actually, there is a dynamic back which you need to be ready to hear because God has plans for you. It's not just about you. Is it red, green, or orange? 
It's not just about you, it's about him and what he has for you and what he wants to do with you. Now, the answer this guy got was almost certainly not what he wanted to hear at that moment. That doesn't take a lot of guessing, does it? It really was probably a bit of a disappointment. I can't go to be with Jesus. I can't be with that lovely group of guys all laughing and talking and catching fish together. And I've got to go back to this lot who don't like Jesus and probably don't like me, basically. (laughs) who've treated me, as, and rightly so, as a bit of a weirdo outcast, and I've got to go back to them. But what a hero. This man obeyed Jesus. Isn't that important? Jesus, he did what Jesus asked him to do. So what the lesson for us is, yes, bring your request with boulders. He's not told off for asking. He's not wrong to ask this. He's not naughty boy, you should have known better. No, no, he's actually, it's a dynamic. It's his heart cry. I want to be with you. I don't want to stay here. And actually, actually, that's fine. But Jesus says, actually, that's not for you. I've got something else. Actually, ultimately, better. We'll see that quickly in a moment. But he says, listen to, he said to us, listen to answers and obey him. Walk in obedience. And it's not just about him doing what you want. Prayer and our whole relationship is, is about us following through with what Jesus is doing in our lives. Now, it is very clear Jesus knew better than the man himself what was the right position and place for him. And actually, that's in the light of Jesus having a bigger picture than the man. He had a bigger purpose in mind. He had something much beyond what this dear guy could have thought of. Jesus knew, and this is exciting, that this guy would spearhead, listen, a breakthrough in Decapolis. And he did. And you can find it right here in the gospel. This guy spearheaded a breakthrough in this region. Jesus goes back here, I don't know, probably a few months later. We don't know the precise time. But Jesus goes back to Decapolis. And you can read all about it in Mark 7. And verse 31, I'm just going to read you a few verses there. He goes back, verse 31 of Mark 7. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, into the region of Decapolis, where we've just been. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. Now then there's the story of the healing of that deaf man, which we don't need to read. Uh, Uh, Jesus commanded them, interesting this time, not to tell anyone, because the crowd is getting wild. Uh, But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. What a change. And then it says, people were overwhelmed with amazement. They said, people in the same region, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. When Jesus went back to Decapolis, they were more than ready for him. This is the guy who heals people. Bring all your sick out. Bring the deaf man. Bring, whoa, whoa. And Jesus says, whoa, calm down. Guys. Oh, we're not coming down. This is amazing. This is amazing. They were overwhelmed with amazement. Why? Why did people say, get out. We don't want our pig farm spoiled. We've got business to do. Not use crap pot. Go back to you Jewish teacher. Go back to Palestine. But why did those people, when he came again, say, oh, great, he's back. Who was responsible for that change? Go on, you can do the preaching yourself, can't you? Must be the guy. Must be. Jesus told him to go back, tell them what God's done for you, explain to them the mercy of God, and they were ready for Jesus to come and turn the, break, 
open the whole area. That's what happened when Jesus went back to Decapolis. The whole area opened up to him. This man obeyed Jesus and boy did it make a difference. And that lesson is a big one for us. What we need to do, and it's a particular area that it really touches, is be sensitive. What is Jesus telling you to do? Not just what you want to do, or what you even think is the best thing for you to do for Jesus. Because we can often do that. This man might have done that, spiritualized it validly up to a point. No, Jesus may have some different plan. Be ready to hear him and listen. Don't see it as just, you know, red, green, or amber, yes or no, but actually try and hear. What's God saying to me? What's his plan for me? Where will I be most fruitful? Where does he want me to operate? I think there's a lot of vulnerability in us when we're new Christians, but actually when we're old Christians as well. At any point, sometimes when we get stirred up by something, when the new move of the Spirit or God just connects with us or something happens, and we get really excited and we think there are all sorts of things we can do that Jesus must want us to do. He must want me to give up my job and go to Bible college. He must want me to do this. He must want me to do that. He must want me to you know, do this. And basically, whoa, what is Jesus saying to you? I'm not sure. It might not be that. That's an enthusiastic, well-meaning thing. But, uh, you know, is it what Jesus is saying? We want what he says to us. Now, in this case, he said to this guy, stay where you are, tell your friends. Perhaps that's more common than we realize. That's often where things start. I think we do tend to need, we tend to stay where we are until Jesus clearly shows us to move. Some of us have got the fidgets. Some of us are, you know, ants in our pants and all the rest of it. And we're always wanting to move on. Well, I'm not sure that's the Holy Spirit always. I think just take time. What is God saying to you? What is Jesus saying? You know, don't let's ask, don't let prayer be him rubber, 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 rubber stamping my bright ideas. It's a dynamic Come on, come on. He's going to talk to you. He's, going to, he's not out to squash you or rubbish you or say, yeah, I don't want you with me. That's not what's going on here. Jesus came back to you. This guy, I'm wondering, I mean, I love to speculate. I have no clue at all. But I wonder if this guy ended up as a key disciple. In a few years' time, there's going to be, well, I don't even know, maybe only 18 months. There's going to be a crucifixion, resurrection. There's going to be Pentecost. I mean, this guy won't have gone away, will he? He must be part of the early church. I guess Several others would be who we read about in the Gospels. But, but that, that's speculation. But the fact is that Jesus came back to Decapolis anyway. And he'd done what he was asked and the thing was ready. So now we need to end quickly with what had he done? The power of telling. Let's go to that one now. What happened to this man was prophetic. Now that's why I've talked about it being prophetic since the beginning. You see, the question that's often asked, asked by your um, people writing commentaries on the Bible. Why did Jesus say to this guy, go and tell everybody, when so often Jesus said the opposite? If you know your Gospels, often Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Now, there are two reasons given often for why Jesus tells this man to go and uh, so many others he tells not to. And uh, one of them is slightly boring, but possibly a bit of truth in it. And the other is exciting and even more truth in it. There you are, I'm biased. So the first slightly boring one is this, that this is a Gentile-dominated area. 
So there is no danger of a surge of messianic madness. These people are not going to suddenly want to make Jesus king of the Jews or a military leader and kick out the Romans. So it's okay for the man to talk. That's probably true. But what was the positive reason? Why, why is Jesus? But still, Jesus is really pushing it in a way. He says, go and tell them all that I've done, all the Lord's done and his mercy. And It's very clear. Go and spell it out to them. Well, this is the exciting one. This is a prophetic foreshadowing of the gospel age, which it is, isn't it? Jesus has gone over the border, across the lake, into Gentile territory. This is like the rest of the world. This is dark, pagan. They do stuff that the law wouldn't want them to do, obviously, the pig rearing. But there's hugely demonized people, people with more demons than you can count. This is dark. This is troubled. This is anti-Yahweh country, the Lord. Anti-Jewish God, if that's what that means. Anti the true one, true God. This is like the rest of the world. And as we said in the first point, Jesus has as much authority there as he does in in Palestine. But now Jesus is saying, this is how it's going to be. This is where it's going. This is the game plan. This is where the gospel age will go. This is a picture of the new covenant age, the gospel age, when the good news of Jesus' kingdom and healing the sick and delivering from demons will go into all the world. And the strategy will be, go and witness to me. Tell them what I've done for you. Start with those who are your own people. That's what he's told. Go to your own people. Start there and go forward. Bring my kingdom forward with your witnessing and your testifying. This is a man of our time, brothers and sisters. This man is pointing to us. This is our time. These are our people. Not natural Jewish, not living in a confused, mixed, pluralistic society. Are they Greeks? Are they Jews? Are they nothing? Are they something? Making money, more focused on business than, than and making money one way or another. And actually quite dark, quite demonic, weird activity, stuff that's really quite poisonous in some ways and quite destructive of lives and into that the gospel comes into that Jesus comes but the program is very simple Jesus does something in an individual's life and then says tell others what I've done for you and that's still the program for you and me isn't it it's not any more complicated than that he comes to you he does something wonderful for you and then you tell others And you start with those who are your own people. Now, it's not wrong to tell strangers. Don't don't ignore strangers on the train or something. I mustn't tell you because I haven't yet told my dad. That'd be stupid. That's daft. That's just an excuse to keep quiet. So, but, but you actually are actually meant to start with those around you. Your own people, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, your work colleagues. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. It's a wonderfully simple and revolutionary plan, and it's been operating since the day of Pentecost. It's been operating from the beginning of Acts, and this guy is a foretaste of what's going to happen. And when it happens, it opens places up to Jesus. Isn't that exciting? So one guy goes and says what Jesus has done for him. A few months later, they're all wanting it. They're all coming out. Oh, he's done all things well. Oh, look at the people breaking healings. Probably other deliverances. 
We don't give them massive detail, but there's a sort of little mini revival in Decapolis in Mark 7. And that's, I would argue, because this guy has prepared the way for Jesus to come. He's been telling all his friends what Jesus has done for him. And actually, in his own very, very nice, simple way, I think he gets something quite profound. This is me being a bit interested in the theology. He gets something quite profound. Jesus says, go home and tell your own people how much the Lord has done for you. Now, the Lord there is deliberately the word Yahweh, God, how much the Lord God has done for you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. So already you see what is called... um, the, the Trinity, it's not in the Bible, beginning to emerge even in these early days. People understood this is God we're meeting. This man knew it. The demons knew it. Look what the demons shouted out. Son of the Most High God. The demons, absolutely no problem knowing who Jesus was. And this man had somehow got it. So it, his message isn't that God does it. It's Jesus does this stuff. And Jesus does God's stuff. So the, Jesus and the Lord become synonymous which is the beginnings of the emerging of the reality that the Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God. Wow! And there's one God. And, and it, so I think that's quite exciting. I sort of think I enjoy, I enjoy looking at it. You get that sort of, you get that with me, don't you? Sorry about that. But I hope some of you will find that interesting. But the point is that this guy, though he's non-Jewish and everything else, a very bottom-of-the-pile type bloke, he sort of gets something pretty profound about who Jesus is. And I guess that's probably part of his message when he goes and tells his friends, this man has done all things for me. Like the woman at the well. Do you remember her, John 4? I've met someone who told me everything I ever did. I love it. These very ordinary, quietly, quite marginal, troubled people seem, seem to get something. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. He, he, he does it. He is the one. That's what this man would have been saying. Now, I don't think it was that easy for him. He probably had to go back, and as we've already said, he had to get over people's wariness of him. Now, they would have been pretty wary of him, as he really changed. He's quite a sort of violent, sort of weird guy. So he'd have had natural resistance. I doubt if everybody welcomed him with open arms. And then he's had this thing of Jesus causing trouble to the economy. So it, it probably wasn't an immediately easy thing, but he did it. And he went and explained, and he proved that he changed. He proved, I, yeah, I'm the bloke. I used to run around the tombs, no clothes on, cut myself. Look, you know, Jesus did it. That's brilliant, isn't it? And it tells us, do you know what? You want to witness to your friends. You probably, I hope, well, I hope for your sake, it probably isn't quite as dramatic as this. But you want to witness to your friends. You just tell them what Jesus has done for you. That, I mean, don't think, oh, I can't answer all their questions about creation and evolution and suffering and no of course you can't but you can tell them what Jesus has done for you and that's what he requires you to do go home to your own people tell them how much the Lord has done for you how he has had mercy on you now I'm challenged as well as you it's not like I do it all the time but I'm challenged actually it's not that complicated Use your own words. Use your own circumstances. Don't try and use religious terminology. Don't feel you've got to be able to answer every question they've got. Just tell them what it means for you. Someone once said, a person with an experience is never at the mercy with someone with only an argument. And that's true. If someone's just got an argument, oh, well, what about this, what that? But your experience, you're not at the mercy of that because you know what you know. 
You get it all through the Gospels. The blind man who got healed and all the Pharisees and said, well, this man's evil and this man's that. You, you probably were evil as well. And he says, oh, I don't know. I don't know who he is. But one thing I know, once I was blind, now I can see. You know that story. Similar principle. You know, I don't understand. I don't even know who he is. Oh, no, I'm just thrilled I can see. You know, and, and he's the one who did it. And he's good. And if you think he's not good, you must be daft. You know, that's basically his message. And, and you can say things like that as well, in a nice way. You know, you can say, basically, I can't answer all your questions, but I know this. And then, of course, of course, your life has got to match up with that to a degree. I don't mean that as a perfectionist, because I know some of you go and have sleepless nights, the more sensitive souls. You will make mistakes, but you, you will also be changed by the gospel. And it needs to be evident by your attitudes. So it's not just your words. And they will say, well, you're different. You've, uh, you've handled that differently. I've had that said to me recently about something that was very tricky and difficult uh, by just someone in, in, a, in a secular setting. And uh, I said, well, uh, you know, I, I'm trusting God about it, really. I believe that, you know, somehow work for good sort of thing in my own words. And, and you, I mean, I'm not saying they immediately became Christians. I'm just saying that's how it happens. That's how it happens. You just say what God's done for you in the middle of normal life. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and has had mercy on you. And the last verse, which you've already read, let's put it up. The people were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That is one lovely verse that I, from the people of Decapolis, as we've already said, and I would attribute that breakthrough, humanly speaking, to the demoniac's testimony. As best I can. It seems to me that he, they heard him. They were impressed. They thought, boy, he really has changed. It's two or three, four months. Look at the guy. He's around helping people. He's got, holding a job down. He's doing this. He's doing that. He loves people. He's friendly. Keeps talking about the Messiah Jesus. I'd like to meet him myself. Oh, he's coming back. Wow. Get all your sick and demonized. This is the guy who healed him. And you can see it just opened the door. And they said, and this, what the bit I want to end on is this is a picture of our time. Please get that in your spirit. This is Jesus saying, this is how it will be. It won't be just in Israel. It'll be anywhere. It'll be dark places, pagan places, decapolis type places. And I will come. My authority will be there. Demons will have to go. People will be healed. And people will then tell their friends. And then their friends will be open to meeting me. You don't have to make them a Christian. You just prepare the way. You can't make them a Christian. But you can prepare the way and see what God will do. Hallelujah. Let's stand together and let's have the band up. Let's just take a moment before the band, as they're getting up, just to say, Lord, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Lord, help me to be a good witness. Lord, help me to be a living epistle, a living letter of your love and your grace to the people around me. Please, before we play the music, don't play just for a minute. Let's just articulate our prayer. Let's hear a murmur of prayer. Lord, help me to be a witness. Help me to tell those who are my own people, whatever that means for you, what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Lord, give me the right words. Give me the right opportunity. Let's pray. Pray proper prayers for yourself. Lord, help me. 
help me just to do it. When I get on, you're not going to be able to force it. Of course you're not. This man presumably had to wait a little bit for people to accept him, I would have think. But then he got an opportunity to do it. He must have done. And Jesus had told him to, and so it would have worked. And uh, Lord, please help us to do the same. Come on, let's pray. Lord, help me to be a witness at work this week. Help me, Lord. Don't get heavy about it. Just be open and ready. Help me to be a witness to my neighbours, to my relatives, to my friends, to my college friends, to my school friends. Lord, help me just to be real when they say, how do you handle that or why are you doing that? To be real about my love for you and what you've done for me. Oh, Lord, help me. Help me to be a witness. Help me to, to talk excitedly. Lord, we long, I'll pray with you, we long, Lord, for an impact where the people who once would have said, we don't want anything to do with Jesus, say, he has done everything well. What a change that is. Same area. People who said, we don't want you, leave. Said, he's done everything well. What a change. Lord, we want to see changes like that in our day and generation. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.